You're listening to Locally Sourced Science. Your connection to the scientific discoveries happening in the Finger Lakes community. Hello, and welcome to Locally Sourced Science. It's October 15th, 2019, and I'm your host, Patricia Waldron. In this week's episode, we're over the moon for astronomy. In honor of the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing and the 2019 Nobel Prize in Physics, which was just awarded for research on the evolution of the universe and Earth's place in the cosmos, today's episode is all about planets and asteroids and moons. Oh my. In our first interview, Megan McElroy talks with Beth Ellen Clark, a physics professor at Ithaca College and a mission asteroid scientist for NASA. They'll discuss the OSIRIS-REx mission to land on the asteroid Bennu, collect a rock sample, and send it back to Earth for analysis. Later in the show, Esther Rakusen talks with Zoe Lerner-Pontario, manager of the Spacecraft Planetary Imaging Facility at Cornell. She curated a collection entitled Postcards from Beyond, a Timeline of Exploration, which includes a selection of images that are both scientifically valuable and incredibly beautiful, captured during the 50 years that humans have been sending cameras into space. Prepare for takeoff. This is Megan McElroy for Locally Source Science, and this week I spoke to Beth Ellen Clark. Clark is a physics professor at Ithaca College and the mission asteroid scientist for NASA's OSIRIS-REx mission. I spoke to her about her role on the project, the goals of the OSIRIS-REx mission, and what asteroids can tell us about the birth of our solar system. My name is Beth Ellen Clark, and I am Mission Asteroid Scientist for NASA's OSIRIS-REx Asteroid Sample Return Mission. Like, what exactly is that project? Can you give a a rundown? Yeah. The OSIRIS-REx project is um, a pretty large spacecraft mission that is, uh, the spacecraft right now is in orbit around our target asteroid. Um, The asteroid is um, a very small 500-meter object. Um, His name is Bennu, and um, it's 101955. Bennu is the asteroid number. The mission is to swoop down to the surface and um, grab some sample while being for five seconds in contact with the surface, and then scoop up the sample and put it into a sample return capsule, and then come back to planet Earth and drop the capsule through the atmosphere of the Earth down to the desert in Utah, where the sample will be, you know, retrieved by NASA scientists. Why do this? Like, why? Why would we go to Yeah, why would we land on an asteroid (laughs) and take a rock and bring it back? Very good question. I think, and there's a lot of different reasons, but I'll give you my favorite reason. Okay, so from our meteorite collection right now, we can look at the um, meteorites very closely and learn a lot of information about our early solar system from these um, laboratory analyses. From such analyses, we've learned incredible things. For example, we see in some of these meteorites um, very small diamonds, and there's no way that such a component could form in our solar system. So that's evidence that 
this diamond comes from a solar system beyond our own. And the kind of um, formation environments that could create that diamond are seen in the expanding shells of red giant stars um, and also in supernovae uh, events. It's very exciting to find some something in a rock that you can hold in your hand that comes from a different star system. Yeah. And we find a lot of such components. We find a lot of such things that tell us information about our solar system in its very early, earliest days. And when we look at all these meteorites and ask ourselves, where did these come from? We can point back to the asteroid regions between Mars and Jupiter. And we believe that in the meteorite collection we have thus far, if you count every single meteorite we have, we've only sampled about maybe a hundred of those asteroids. And to compare that, there's hundreds of thousands, probably uh, millions of known asteroids at this point. When we have sampled so little of what's out there, it makes us very curious about what else is out there. So the, it's sort of a statistical argument for seeking more information about the solar system by looking at small asteroids that have never been melted or accreted onto larger planets in their whole history, and they still retain the earliest days of the solar system for us. So we want to get a sample of Bennu because it's a very dark, carbon-rich asteroid. And we think there's going to be something on Bennu that is going to be new information to us about our own solar system and possibly about nearby solar systems. Were you interested in um, asteroids and meteorites and stuff like this before you came onto this project? Oh yes, definitely. <laughs> My whole life has been preparing me for this project. I was a rock collector as a kid, starting with pebbles on the beach, and then I studied geology in undergraduate. And uh, the, on the last day of my last year in undergraduate school in geology, the professor gave us a thin section, slice, very skinny slice of a rock that he asked us to identify what are these minerals. So we were identifying the minerals and we realized that this is a very strange rock to have these minerals next to each other. You don't see that on planet Earth. We figured out that what he had given us was a slice of extraterrestrial material, a slice of a meteorite. And that kind of sparked my interest more than the whole previous semester's worth of Earth rocks. <laughs> so I decided that would be a very interesting direction to take in graduate school. It's like, where do these rocks come from? Where do meteorites come from? That led to the study of asteroids through telescopic uh, lenses. And once I had um, some papers written about the meteorites and then the asteroids observed through ground-based telescopes, the kind of the next step for me logically, intellectually, was to work on spacecraft missions. Um, so I got on a spacecraft mission 
we uh, realized that the next step, you know, as an asteroid science community would be to bring back a sample. And so I got involved in a, in a proposed asteroid mission. So um, in the early days of this mission, we were just an idea. We were working together on proposing to NASA. You join a lot of these idea teams, right? And once in a while, one gets selected. <laughs> and this one got selected. So in 2011, OSIRIS-REx was selected by NASA to launch in 2016. So we got to work right away. We had five years to build the instruments, put the spacecraft together. And um, we have three spectrometers on board, one that's entirely built by students. So what does your work with this project look like now? So right now I am sort of middle management. So the PI, the principal investigator, has the responsibility of putting all the mission elements together. He uh, commands them all, and so he needs a lot of management assistance with that. So for the science team part of it, um, there are a few of us who sit in the middle who um, work with the scientists on the whole science team and then report up to the principal investigator. So what we do is we work together with the science team members and um, we divide them into working groups so, so that we can kind of integrate the, the work that's going on. So the, the work that we do is to design the observations that the spacecraft is going to make and then we um, take the data that comes down from the spacecraft and we look at it and process it and describe what it tells us to the rest of the team. So sometimes deciding what the data tells us requires experts from different areas. So it's a really nice project because it really integrates all these different areas um, of scientific research into one team. So what is it going to look like then um, when the sample comes back? Like what happens then? So once the sample gets back, for one thing, you're going to see some very happy people. <laughs> so if it lands at all on planet Earth, we'll be overjoyed. And then when we open the sample return capsule and pull out the sample, there will be a whole new level of joy and rejoicing. Um, we will, of course, take it directly to um, an archiving facility. It's a special facility built especially for this purpose, for extraterrestrial material, where a lot of our meteorite samples are curated. So the sample capsule will be taken to Johnson Space Center. So once we've opened up the capsule and figured out what we have, then we'll divide it into roughly three piles. One pile will be about 75% of the sample, and we will put that away for future generations. Um, another pile uh, will be um, samples that we'll share all over the country. And another pile will be samples that we send abroad to our international colleagues for their analyses. Because we need all these different people looking at the rocks and figuring out what they're telling us. We need people from very different 
perspectives and different fields. Some people can do mineralogy, other people can study the texture of the components. Some people will be looking for signs of prebiotic molecules, signs of origin of life. Um, we'll be looking at the optical surface of our samples to see if it's different from the subsurface, and that will help a, a lot with those ground-based telescopic surveys I was telling you about. Um, so there, there's going to be a lot of analyses done with these samples. That's why we need to scoop up a lot of rocks. The, um, the plan is to get uh, anywhere from 60 grams to 2,000 grams wow. of material. And so I'm hoping for the 2,000. Is there like a dream result or like a dream find from this? Mm. Okay, an order of excitement. Number one would be if there's any information on origin, anything new that we don't already know. Maybe new chiralities, maybe new molecules. Any of that would be fabulous, or even just confirmation. Second most exciting thing would be new components of extra solar system material. Anything that could not have formed in our solar system would be super exciting. Um, and then components that are in the meteorite that tell us about the earliest days of our solar system would be also very exciting. <laughs> There's some people who believe that there's really a, a, a continuum in properties between comets and asteroids, that a very sort of dust-rich comet is about the same thing as an ice-rich asteroid. And so, you know, when you become an asteroid and when you become a comet, it's kind of starting to look pretty fuzzy, really continuous. So another really exciting potential result will be if we see materials that look more comet-like than what we're used to in our meteorite collections, then again, that would be incredible right. um, and would help us to understand that transition, how far it goes. So I, gave you, if you, I, I think I gave you four different possible fantastic answers. I'm sure there are more. I read, I think, somewhere that um, your, the samples being collected this at the end of this year? Or? I think the current projection is between summer and fall of next year, 2020, so coming up pretty soon. And the project is very busy right now trying to figure out where that sampling event is going to happen. It would be remiss if, if I did not tell you about the amazing students I've had here at Ithaca College. Um, who have helped out in the work that I have to do for the project. So I'll get them involved in various, you know, subtopics on the project. So the, this asteroid seems to be doing something that no other asteroid has ever done before, as far as we know. And we think it's because we're closer than we've ever been before to a near-Earth asteroid of this type. Um, it, is, it seems to be spitting particles off the surface. Just, you know, it's very small, low gravity, so it doesn't take a lot of energy. So spitting little particles, but it's still very interesting. We're very curious. What is causing the spitting? <laughs> what exactly is doing that? Um, but we're also curious to, to see if, because our asteroid, our target asteroid is uh, on an orbit that crosses Earth's orbit around the sun, mm. 
we actually come pretty close to each other once in a while, once in every couple hundred, couple thousand years. Um, and in the meantime, we actually pass through the sort of region of space where Bennu has been. And if it's spitting off these little particles and leaving them in the track of its orbit around the sun, then we are passing through that sort of cloud of material. So he's going to estimate how many of those we should be able to see. And there's we know exactly when we cross that line, when our orbit intersects their orbit. So we know exactly when to go looking to see if bits of Bennu are coming through the atmosphere. And you want to know what's really cool? Sure, yeah. <laughs> so the moment our principal investigator heard about this, he established a collaboration with a very um, well-known ground-based network. And this network has telescopes, little small telescopes all over the place. Um, and they basically look at the sky and watch for meteors. So our PI notified them to watch on this particular day of the year. And that day was September 27. So on September 27, for some reason, the Southern Hemisphere was the, the one part of Earth that was going to go through the possible cloud. It went down to the Southern Hemisphere and watched for meteors from Bennu. They saw 12,000 meteors, mm-hmm. and they think 38 of them <laughs> might be on orbits that are consistent with having come from Bennu. So my student is trying to estimate how many particles we should see coming through the Earth's atmosphere. And this was a student with this particular curiosity, and it's not really my area. So I have to learn all this new stuff in order to stay with the student. So it's pretty neat. I'm Esther Rakusin for Locally Sourced Science. July 20th, 2019, marked the 50th anniversary of the first time that humans walked on the moon. The Apollo 11 astronauts also took photographs of the moon and the Earth, which, over the last five decades, have become iconic images. You can see images of the moon, planets, and other objects in the solar system in a new exhibit called Postcards from Beyond, a timeline of exploration. The images are on display at the Tompkins County Public Library until October 31st. Zoe Lerner-Pontario, manager of the Spacecraft Planetary Imaging Facility, or SPIF, at Cornell, curated the series of images taken in space as early as 1946 up to the present. I recently toured the exhibit with Dr. Pontario to learn more about these beautiful photos. I started out by asking her about SPIF, and then heard more about the exhibit. Can you just say a few words about SPIF at Cornell? So SPIF is NASA-funded, and we're housed at Cornell, and we began as an archival facility, uh, a way for scientists to get access to images back when they were on hard copy. So we do still maintain historical prints and negatives of missions like Voyager and Viking. And we are moving now into more research support that involves uh, computer-based image analysis and offering workshops and assistance to scientists in that respect. And we also do an enormous amount of outreach 
in this region. We serve a region within a three-hour drive radius, so we visit schools, museums, libraries, community centers, and host field trips and visits and tours of SPIF as well. So Zoe, um, can you talk a little, a little bit about why you formed this exhibit? The library approached me about this summer being the Apollo 50th anniversary, and they were doing a space-themed exhibit. They knew that we specialized in planetary images. They basically came and said, can you do something? You're the planetary imaging facility, and gave me a lot of artistic license, and after pondering it and bouncing ideas off my husband, we kind of hatched this idea of a timeline that would put that first image of an object, of another world, up against some of the most recent and spectacular ones that we've obtained. And it grew from there. I wanted to show the progress that we've made in space-based imagery. I wanted to show why we keep going back to places as our technology gets better, our cameras get better, and understand why we don't just go somewhere and say, okay, done. Let's get back to the exhibit, and this is a timeline, and so can you talk a little about where the timeline starts in the exhibit? The timeline starts, uh, surprisingly, in 1946. Uh, That's 11 years before Sputnik, and it was right after World War II, and the uh, Americans had obtained several V-2 missiles from the German uh, factories, and one of them was taken, uh, the warhead was taken out, and a camera designed by Clyde Holliday was attached to the missile, and without the weight of the warhead, they were able to launch the missile to an altitude of 105 kilometers, which is just over the boundary into space, and the camera took pictures of the Earth. And that is the first picture in the exhibit, that image that was taken. And Clyde Holliday actually, there's a quote from him at the exhibit that he envisioned the idea that the whole Earth could be mapped and imaged in this kind of way. And of course, that has truly come to pass. And then it takes us through us gradually working out to our moon and then other planets and their moons and then smaller bodies like comets. And we've continued on since then. So here we're standing in front of that photograph of Earth. And do you want to point out anything about this photo that is significant to you? I think that it really shows the Earth with its clouds, uh, and you really can't make out anything on the ground, but clouds and against that blackness of space. And the atmosphere looks so thin, and many astronauts report this from space, how thin it actually is. And it's also possible you can take a ruler to it and clearly see that it is curved, so it is not a straight horizon. And it really is that first pullback and seeing us against the emptiness of space. Could you give a little bit of uh, a perspective on the progression of photography? Well, for instance, the first camera in space back in 1946 was a 35 millimeter camera and they had to rig a timer on it to take the pictures automatically. The first pictures of Mars were actually returned with TV cameras, not photographic cameras, because, of course, the spacecraft do not come back, so they could not use film because they would never get the film back, so they used TV cameras since they could live broadcast images. Uh, There was also a spacecraft that did use film and developed the film on board and then scanned 
the developed negative and radioed that back to Earth. Of course, nowadays it's much easier. We have digital cameras, and the image is recorded in a digital format straight to that, no analog, and it's radioed back to Earth, goes right into a server. So it's very streamlined at this point, but a lot of times we are working with getting digital copies through scanning of prints and negatives uh, from the earlier days. Let's talk a little bit about the coloration of the photos. This picture of Jupiter, the full half of the picture, is what's considered enhanced color. And that is where the colors are real, but we have bumped up the intensity in order to see details and differences better. So we get better science out of doing that. Another example is the Venus images. None of those are in true color because none of them are taken in visible colors. Uh, Venus is rather boring in normal vision, and it's only through looking through things like infrared, ultraviolet radar, which our eyes cannot see, that we can see things on Venus, and therefore we must add false coloring, otherwise you'd be looking at a black piece of print. What should visitors to the exhibit look for? Considering this is, I think at its heart, both an exhibit of history and an exhibit of art, the captions actually do not contain a lot of science. I like to focus on the history in them. And if nothing else, I want people to just look at them and enjoy them for their beauty. Um, that is really what guided me in this. And if they have time to read the captions, also appreciate the history and the context of these images. And I do a lot of outreach, uh, public talks and such, and I do talk a lot about science. So for this exhibit, I wanted to do something a little different, and I just wanted to focus on uh, aesthetics and, and beauty and history. Where can people find more information about SPIF? We do have a website, which is spiff.astro.cornell.edu. And that website provides general information about our facility. Uh, we also do have a Facebook page uh, at spiff.cornell, and that is where we are sharing uh, updated events that we are offering uh, and updated news. We post several times a day about all the news articles of planetary science. It takes about four posts a day to keep up with all of it. Again, the exhibit Postcards from Beyond, a Timeline of Exploration, is on display at the Tompkins County Public Library until October 31st. The library is located at 101 East Green Street in Ithaca. You can visit tcpl.org to find out more. For Locally Sourced Science, I'm Esther Rakusin. In the final segment, we have a blast from a past episode where Fayez Bakalian talked with Lisa Kaltenegger, an exoplanet expert and director of the Carl Sagan Institute at Cornell University, about the ingredients necessary for life on Earth and other planets. So this begs the question, what particularly are you looking for in these other planets that would tell you definitively or not if there is life there? So basically what we're doing is we are learning as much as we can from life on the Earth, so from life as we know it. And if you want to find signs that there's life as we know it on another planet, what you're looking for is oxygen with a reduced gas. That would be methane, for example, or N2O. What that basically just means is if there's oxygen and methane, then those two react with each other and they would produce CO2 and water. 
So if you still find them in big amounts in the air of a planet, in the atmosphere of another world, then something produces them in huge amounts. And this is where for the oxygen we have no other solution and that's life. We don't know of anything else that could. For the methane, it could be geology. For some other things like CO2 that is also produced by bacteria, it could also be geology. So the hardest thing is going to be to say there is no other explanation for this except life on another planet. Because borrowing from Carl Sagan, he was saying that, of course, extraordinary results or claims need extraordinary evidence. So if you are going to state that you think you found life on another world, you better be as sure as you can be. And if life is completely different, that's what I get asked a lot, then we don't know how we would look for it. So what we do is we look for life as we'd know it. But if life were different than what we know, it could actually also show weird signs in a way, right? We couldn't explain it. So what we're looking for is life as we know it, the signature of oxygen or ozone with reduced gas. That's the one thing. That's life as we know it, and we have no other explanation for it if we find both of it. And anything that's weird. Because anything that's weird, again, some of it will be just geology, and we don't know about it. But some of it might give us some insight on what other kind of lives could be out there. Thanks for joining us this week for Locally Sourced Science. Today's show featured interviews by Megan McElroy, Esther Rakusen, and Fayez Bakalian. It was produced by me, Patricia Waldron. We thank Joe Lewis, Cece Giannotti, Kai Engel, and Blue Dot Sessions for their music and vocal contributions. Get in touch with us on Twitter at FLX Science Radio, on Facebook at Locally Sourced Science, and on Instagram at locally.sourced.science. Locally Source Science is a production of WRFI, Watkins Glen, Ithaca.